is Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode will feature two segments and an interview. Our first segment will be a discussion about the Ten Commandments featured in this week's Parsha. Our second segment will be about birth control, and we'll have an interview with our very own board member, Alana Pentelnik. So in this week's Parsha, we have some really famous events, one of which is Har Sinai, the Ten Commandments, etc. But the Ten Commandments is a little bit of a misnomer. Yeah, there aren't ten of them, and they aren't commandments. <laughs> and when we do want to talk about commandments, we have 613 of them. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So in Hebrew, they're called the, uh, well, I get, well, in Hebrew, they typically refer to as the Seret HaJibrot, but in the Torah, they're called the Seret HaZvarim, but that's maybe a, for, for a different time. Yeah. Uh, ten statements, ten utterances, utterances right? Utterances, what, I, I think, I don't know what that is, other than the thing of which there are ten of in Parsha Yitro and Parsha Ved Hanan. Um, okay. They don't neatly correspond to commandments. If you just read it and count all the distinct mitzvot and... You might get 12, you might get 8. There are lots of different ways to divide those verses and count distinct mitzvot. Uh, you're probably not going to come up with 10. 10 is the statements, not necessarily uh, the commandments. I mean, just perhaps one of the most philosophically interesting ones that comes is like the Anochi Hashem, I am the Lord, you're God of Torah, is that a commandment or is that just a statement? Hello, my name is... Yeah, right? <laughs> so uh, according to Rambam, that's a commandment, a very important one. Uh, according to others, it's not. Chazkai Kreska says it's not a commandment. Many other just... Readers of of the Torah don't think that's a that's a mitzvah. It's just a, a statement. It's an introductory statement or something like that, uh, but not a specific commandment. And uh, on and it starts from there. It continues. Uh, what's a command? What's not a command? How many commandments are contained in each of these debrot? And then in addition to that, I think there's sort of the question of what is their place. Um, like we live in this culture where like the Ten Commandments is very important, um, in part because of Christians who feel that the Ten Commandments are very important. But I wouldn't necessarily say that like the prohibition on coveting your neighbor's donkey is like more important than the prohibition of like, I don't know, not sleeping with your sibling um, or whatever, um, you know, of mitzvot that appear elsewhere in the Torah. Right. So that's also, I think, an open question, right? I think, like, certainly the narrative presents these, the giving of these tablets with these 10 statements is a big deal. It seems the revelation of these 10 statements seems to be significant and maybe different in some way, uh, more, you know, smoke and thunder, right, than some of the other revelatory moments in the Torah. Say, right, that it's not about the content, it's about the revelation itself, the experience, the mass theophany. Um, I think until now, you have the Jewish people kind of seeing what God can accomplish. You have the splitting of the sea, you have the, the mm-hmm. Mako um, plagues, um, but you don't have them speaking kind of directly or hearing directly from God. You have them getting mitzvot already. You have all the mitzvot relating to the man. You have Hachura um, Shazel Right, you have you have the calendar coming down as a, a mitzvah. You have the korban pesach coming down as a mitzvah. So you have communication between God and the people um, already mediated through Moshe, but you don't have God speaking directly to the people until this moment, and really from this moment ever again, more or less. Correct, correct. So so that's that's a difference, and yeah. there are some rishonim who say that the other mitzvah of the like the ten statements are 
archetypes of mitzvot, and the subsequent mitzvot, certainly the, maybe the mitzvot and Parshat Mishpatim, are all the elaboration and details of the mitzvot. I mean, so I, I don't want to like I don't want to like go too far in this. Oh, they're like all the mitzvot are the same. There's nothing special. It's just a Christian invention. Like it comes from somewhere, <laughs> and there are Jewish readings of Sefer Shemot where um, these ten statements are, are significant and paradigms or archetypes or something where, you know, certainly the presentation of these tablets is special and a big deal. Uh, and we, we know from, uh, you know, from the Mishnah that at one point in time, the earliest Jewish liturgies had the recitation of the Sefer Jibrot as part of, like, daily, you'd say the Shema and you would say the Amidah and you would read the Sefer Jibrot. Right. So that happened in the Beit HaMikdash that the Kohanim would recite the Sefer Jibrot. And then the Talmud kind of discusses, well, in Bracha, we saw this in Dafyumi a couple of weeks ago. Well, we should do that too. Like, that sounds good. The Sefer Jibrot are great. And the answer is no, because there are, there are Minim that there are heretics who will say those are like the main thing and everything else is kind of secondary to it or not as important. So that's kind of, a, a big deal. Um, like, it's so important not to overly glorify the Ten Commandments that we don't put them at any point into our tefillah. However, there is a custom to recite them privately every day. Um, so they're in the Sidur, kind of, I think, usually after Alinu and all of that stuff every day, you can have, there's all these things you're supposed to, like, say every day, and the Ten Commandments um, are one of them, but we never recite them as a community. And, but it, like, cuts the other way when you think about sort of synagogue architecture. We have at least referenced the Ten Commandments not fully kind of spelled out, you know, around our, our own Kodesh, and many synagogues do. Which makes sense, because the original tablets were put in the Beit HaMikdash, so our synagogues... In, in, in the own. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, <laughs> the iconography makes a lot of sense. Um, I I think that, that that tension is really like it's very dramatic. You know, it's they're they're very they are foundational to an awful lot of Jewish religious life and Jewish ethical life. Uh, but we don't want to you know give um, implicit support to a Christian maybe you know reading of the Torah where there are only ten commandments, where all the other mitzvot of the Torah have been abrogated or superseded or are no longer necessary. And just these ten commandments that is anathema to a Jewish sensibility. There are. 613 mitzvot, not, not 10. And so I, I agree, like referring to the Ten Commandments as though there are only 10, aside from the imprecision in calling them the Ten Commandments, it, it right. also, I think, implies the Ten Commandments. And that's it. That's that's what this book has, just Ten Commandments. Uh, and of course, there are 613. Also, I just want to say, like, we should just, just mention, like, if you were to open the Torah and, you know, I give you a... I, Whatever, uh, you know, fifty dollar, you know, uh, gift certificate to the, you know, kosher restaurant of your choice. If you can like open a and chumash, <laughs> yeah. If you can open a, a open a chumash and a, and a pad and, and and pen and write down the six hundred thirteen. But there was a whole time in Jewish history where that was the whole genre. We have a tradition from Rav Simlai in the Gemara that there are six hundred thirteen mitzvot, and then we have like several centuries of really really intense scholarship taking that tradition. Oh, there are six hundred thirteen mitzvot, and then oh really? So tell me what they are, okay? And like to actually read the Torah and come up with six hundred thirteen is not a simple task because the greatest minds of the Jewish people for like 400 years like you know battled mightily over determining just what was and what was not one of these 613 mitzvot. Right and some of it it's really cool actually that whole project so like some of it is in these like very very long form verse at a time like at the end of the Gonic period when uh, Hebrew poetry was really in vogue so you have you have some countings there um, some of our earliest halachic works um, are countings of the of the mitzvot and, and in a amazing thing that shakes out also is that like, so let's say the Rambam writes a Sefer HaMitzvot, and then the Ramban, instead of writing his own Sefer HaMitzvot, which I guess is not necessary once the Rambam has his, he just like, um, 
cuts some out and replaces them with new ones. Because everyone's committed to that number of 613. And so, so if, if I'm going to say, no, you think that's not one, but I still need to get back up to 613. Right. So anyone he takes out, he puts one in. Anyone he puts one in, he has to take one out. And it's a, uh, a short one line, you know, like, you know, passage in the Talmud. There are 613 uh, based on Gematria. Like, it's not, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't seem like a very, like, particularly ancient tradition, but, like, there it is We've in the Talmud. Really 613. And so, and so but everyone else like, feels really committed to that. And so they're going to make sure their list also has 613. But it's, like, really, like, the, the idea that in order for the Ramban to say there's a commandment to settle in the land of Israel, let's say, he needs to, like, delete Which one. Which Rambam doesn't list, right? Right. He needs to delete one from Maimonides' yeah, list. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a, it's kind of an aggressive thing because it puts then a limit on mitzvot also. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, that's the sort of, you know, like we always, we always feel like, oh yeah, just like add it on, whatever, mm-hmm. the more the merrier. And it's like, no, once you have 613, you, you can't just keep adding. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's actually, that's very, in terms of like, uh, like recommended books or like things to study, like to go through the list of mitzvot that Ramban adds is really cool. I, I if it's like less than ten, I think, right? But it's you know. Well, like, and he has commentary. He he adds in comments on the Rambam. Yeah, yeah. It's a great. It's a, yeah. it's a great safer. But like, but like, particularly sure. <laughs> to read the ones his list of the mitzvot and descriptions of the mitzvot that he feels Rambam left out. I think it's kind of cool to see uh, what they are and 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 how how he advocates for them. I think it's a neat uh, learning project if somebody's looking for a learning. Project. I don't know that that's exists in English. Oh, maybe it's in. Is it in the Chevelle? I don't know. It may, it may not be in English, but it, it's. Uh, uh, there's also- number seventeen to. Learn Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs> Only, wow, 17. That's high list. The Ramban. The Ramban is, I think, the top 20. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, um, and there's also just, um, if you ever want to say, like, what's a good time to set aside to read through a Sefer or a Mitzvah? So um, I had friends who decided to read through Maimonides' whole Sefer or Mitzvah on Shavuos night. And yeah. they, like, start to finish, you could... If you move really quickly and start on the earlier end, you can get through yeah, all of that. And don't take really long, like, pie breaks or something. Oh, oh yeah. Don't talk about it very much because <laughs> 613 is a pretty big number. That's a lot, yeah. Yeah. So we, so we see this all kind of coming to play in shul whenever the Aser Hadib wrote the so-called Ten Commandments, so-called Ten, so-called Commandments are, are, are read where there's a very old custom to stand – because that's how they were given. That's how we received them at Sinai, and it's kind of dramatic that way. Everyone and stands. when it's four a.m. in Shavuos, it's important because otherwise <laughs> you're asleep. Yes, or or, <laughs> or you know ten fifteen on uh, Parsha Yitro. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are others who who say no, like don't treat any verse in the Torah differently. And if you sit when the rest of the Parsha is read, you should sit for this. If you stand for that, you're also giving this like ammunition to this heretical idea. There are only ten commandments. Only these these verses are are sacred and divine and authoritative, etc. And we wouldn't want to do that. And so um, some people insist on sitting even for these uh, verses where I think the overwhelmingly majority customers to stand. And I always announce, you know, like my, my uh, resolution of this uh, conundrum is to Stand for all Torah readings yeah, yes. for the whole year. Which yes, which before I started that, I used to also get drowsy. So this is, that solves a lot of problems. <laughs> I, you know, we stand for Shirat Hayav also in Shalach, and Same, you yeah. you weren't here this week to give uh, your my, normal my... spiel. So I thought of you, and then I was like, I can't pull this off. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, they'll get it next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I was missed. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so come to show here are the Ten Commandments. Decide in advance whether you want to sit or stand, or you can do like a halfsies crouch thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and then count the commandments. That's 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 like a, that's like your like assignment for the surgery. Count the commandments. 
So I have been, I've had the privilege of being what they call it a leap fellow at the um, Herbert Katz Center this year, where they bring in um, clergy from synagogues around the country, and we get to study with scholars who are working at the Katz Center this year. It's an institute for um, advanced Jewish studies. And there's a new book that just came out by a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a sociologist named Melissa Wild. And it's about birth control legalization in the United States and which religious groups were early, she calls them early liberalizers, like early ones to support it, and tracks the relationship between religious groups that were early liberalizers, early supporters, and their support for eugenics. And wow. And it's really crazy. And, and, and like the most amazing thing also, or I thought like a really cool factoid was that the American, I forget what it was called, like the American Eugenics Society or whatever it was, um, would actually like really encourage religious groups to be involved in eugenics. And they would hold, um, competitions for, for sermons that you could like send in to the Eugenics Society and they would like publish best like eugenics sermon of the year. Wow. That's really, so eugen- like eugenics just, Let's define our terms. Right, sure. this is the agenda of trying to improve humanity by making sure that like the best people, however you define that, have more children, and the worst people, however you define that, don't have as many children. And in in practice, this ended up kind of just reinforcing racial and class stereotypes, where wealthy, educated white people were sort of seen as the best kinds of people and were encouraged to have more children, and everyone else was encourage to have fewer children as a way to like end up with a better humanity, right? So this was a, I'd say a widely discredited uh, sort of way of seeing <laughs> the world, especially after Nazism. I think the whole, like nobody, whatever, I'm going to say nobody, but I think at least for, at least for several decades, nobody called himself a eugenicist. And uh, the American <laughs> Eugenics Society just closed up shop. Like they fell off the face of the earth also. Yeah. But I guess in the early 20th century, it was like this was seen as this great progressive kind of movement. Like yeah, Margaret Sanger worked with them directly. It wasn't like she was like, oh, I'm so separate from the eugenics movement. She was like, I'll take support from whoever. Because birth control was not about empowering women women or couples or, you know, or family or planning. Least... It was about, like, let's help these undesirable people have fewer children so they don't become a menace to society when they grow older or something. Exactly. And, like, who are these undesirable people? They're like... Orthodox Jews um, who are moving into, who are coming to America and having a whole bunch of children, and um, you know, and Irish people and Italians, and and they all get written about like very explicitly um, in ways that are just like really you know horrifying in retrospect. And early twentieth century is that right? Is that when you were talking about? Yeah, wow. Yeah, early twentieth century, like the twenties. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about what, what, what Professor Wilde does is she, she says, like, you might have thought it would be connected to suffrage, that, like, if, you're a, if you are pro-women suffrage, you would also be pro-birth control. And she says that, like, really doesn't, for religious groups, that does not correlate at all. And, like, the highest correlation is eugenics and birth control, um, which is just, like, really, really interesting. So not only does she, like, show that this is a trend, but she shows that other things that might have been obvious are not trends and that it's basically a combination of eugenics and social gospel, and if those two things were something your religious group was into, then um, then you were pro birth control legalization. Fascinating. So, fascinating. so 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 which which groups were pro birth control in this the early twentieth century? Um, so the so as Jews reading this book, the the most standout one is the reform movement. Fascinating. Um, yeah, really fascinating. And one of the things that struck me, you know how like when you see a group um, portrait that you're in, you always like only focus on your own face. Um, sure. That's sort of like a okay. phenomenon. 
on in the world. She has, she's a sociologist, so her book is full of charts. And um, so she includes Orthodox Judaism in all of her charts, just as like a foil um, to the reform movement and the conservative, and and she shows how like conservative Judaism eventually uh, becomes um, you know, very publicly pro-birth control. And one of the things that I noticed is that in her book, she never recognizes Orthodox Judaism as being kind of pro-birth control. And that was really striking to me because most Orthodox Jews that I know, like, use birth control. So, like, how did that come? So I thought we could talk a little bit about um, our, our perspectives on birth control and and why it might seem to an outsider, like, no one, you know, the Orthodox Jews, they just yeah. have infinite children. Right. So, so let, maybe we'll, like, sort of def- narrow that scope of that conversation. Because sure. I'd say birth control in Orthodox sociology and birth control in, in halakha, it, these are both, I think, topics beyond the scope of this podcast. Maybe we can sort of narrow it and just talk about um, just m- maybe how how is it that, you know, yes, Orthodox Judaism encourages, mandates even procreating and having children and thinking people are encouraged, I think, you know, the Torah encourages people, I believe, to have children and multiple children, but uh, birth control use is ubiquitous, either for spacing reasons or for family planning reasons. And uh, so, so, yeah, so so that's also true. Yeah. I definitely remember that when I like when people my age were getting married, which is ongoing and not so long ago, it was always sort of like, don't ask that rabbi about birth control. Do ask this rabbi about birth control. But then I had all these friends who went to Stern College and studied with uh, Rabbi Moshe Khan. And what he would tell them is, you don't need to ask a rabbi about birth control. Um, and he's published on this like, very, it, it, he just writes really beautifully about this subject because it's actually kind of an interesting halakha. He's a lovely person. Do you know him? And I've like met him. I don't, he was Sarah's teacher. At Drisha, and, and uh, so I've sort of he's been a, like a, a influence in our lives for, for a very long time. And uh, uh, that that I think that published article you're alluding to about birth control was I think motivated by sort of counter messages that were being delivered to his students by other influential rabbis who adopt that approach of when you get married, you speak to the rabbi who tells you you can have six months, or you can have two years, or you can't have any time at all, and you have mm-hmm. to try to have children right away from marriage, and that that's absolutely essential and and Rav Khan's approach is really quite different, uh, you know, based on on some very, I think, a convincing, compelling reads of, of classic Chuvot that it's not the rabbi's role to intervene in these very personal decisions of couples figuring out when and how they're ready to have children. Right. So his article has has two main parts. One is, do rabbis get involved? And two is, what is even the nature of the, the mitzvah of procreation? So certainly, as you mentioned, there is a mitzvah to have children, but it's it's not a time bound. It's not like on Sukkot, you have a child, you know, like the way, the way that we, we have other time bound mm-hmm. positive commandments of like on Sukkot, you'll take Lulav and Etrog. And so uh, there's not so many mitzvot that you have to do them actively, but there's no expiration date. There's no expiration. There's no, the expiration date is your expiration, right. date, more or less, right? Um, no, but that's yeah, in some yeah. of the earlier literature. It's like you have to have children right now because you could die tomorrow. And and he's sort of like, okay, like this is the 21st century. Let's like breathe a little bit on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to say, okay, so like yes, at some point in your life, like you should not delay this indefinitely. But it does leave like that category of mitzvot is very interesting and does leave open um, a good amount of freedom. And so then when people go to rabbis, this is kind of like part two, what's not happening is the rabbi saying, I read this in this text, and therefore I think you have six months of using birth control. Instead, what's happening is the rabbi saying, I am the ultimate assessor of your life mm-hmm. and and the arbiter of wisdom about like when to best have children, and therefore I will inform you what is right for you. And he's sort of like, that 
that is not an appropriate role for rabbis to play and that the, actually the people who know their lives the best are the people living them. And the, the, there's all sorts of literature about rabbis taking a step back from um, getting involved, for example, in who marries, or within limits, but uh, who marries whom, for example, or when people get married and and, and other things like that. Um, and that this should go into that category of things where like, if, even if rabbis are asked, they should say, that's your. That's a decision for you to make. Yeah, and, then, and then the role for the rabbi or whomever is offering that advice can be one of of sharing values and share. You know, like I think that's appropriate for a rabbi to encourage. You know, or whoever to encourage. Um, as you think about your life goals for the next twenty years, like children should be high on that list, not secondary or tertiary on that list. I think that's an appropriate, like kind of values intervention that rabbis can make. You know, where appropriate, and you know, in our communities, and and we see that. I actually had a conversation recently with somebody who is friends with a lot of religious Jews, but lives in a mostly like kind of secular neighborhood of, of New York City. And she and her husband have two children and don't know anyone else in their like, you know, neighborhood, you know, who have more than two children, but except for like all of her like religious Jewish friends and, and relatives who, who yeah. all have more than two children. And that's like an interesting, she feels like torn between those two cultures. And mm-hmm. those are cultures. And I think that that's an appropriate role for the people influencing our Jewish culture to kind of weigh in and to advise that to couples. It's very, very different mm-hmm. from saying, like, I, I, I offer, I, I give you this dispensation. I, st- right. I, I stamp on this forum. It's a dispensation to yeah. six months after you're married. Yeah. You and and I think, and, and, and it actually prevents the, the kind of values conversation from taking place if it just becomes mm-hmm. a... Like like this sort of magical like power that rabbis have to sort of allow you to do this thing which otherwise you couldn't do which seems to not be I, I don't think that I, do, I don't think that's that's what the halacha is suggesting. Uh, Rav Benny Lau has wrote an article on, on this uh, topic in which he made the comparison to the you know that's sort of one little piece of scaffold right the mitzvah of, of procreating is is understood by Chazal by the rabbis to be a mitzvah incumbent on men that obviously women mm-hmm. are very, very necessary well, for but yes. but uh, but it's a, a man's mitzvah and let's say the man you know we don't we don't tell men you know, at your bar mitzvah, or when you turn eighteen, you know, go out and 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 like marry the first person who'll say yes. To, you know, and 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 start having children. Mm-hmm. It's considered very, very routine and appropriate, and like obviously the right thing to do to wait until you find um, like the right one. <laughs> who'll agree, yeah. who'll agree to. I, I I remember actually. It's funny. Rabbi Riskin said this to us when I was like. 18 years old, he says, to find someone to marry, you know, like, they'll line up to marry you, but to find the right person, you have to line up to, you know, whatever. <laughs> to, you know, whatever. So, you know, right, to find the right person with whom you can be a successful parent and, like, successful life partner, uh, mm-hmm. that can take some time. And it's routine to spend years or a decade or more until you find that person. And for all of those years, you you know, you're not involved in this mitzvah. You're putting off this mitzvah of having children. So if you finally meet her and she wants to finish law school, right, that's that's, that's entirely, right, That's or, or whatever it is, or she doesn't feel, you know, she wants to stabilize, you know, the relationship with, you know, 12 months or 24 months of married life before having children. That that really is not a, that, that's just a variation on the theme. It's not a different category, right? If, you know, you wouldn't ask a rabbi, like, oh, you know, like, like, am I, is it permissible to wait to get married until I find somebody I like? No one would say that, no rabbi would say you have six months. Like, that's just not, that's <laughs> absurd. And it's similarly absurd to then go back to the rabbi and have to say, you know, yeah, I found her, but she, she wants to finish law school or whatever. And, and I think it's, Benny Lau made that point. I think it's very, very convincing. I, I sort of one final, like, sort of whatever, I feel like I <laughs> have some, some, some emotions on this. I, I once had a conversation with a very, very learned woman who... Uh, at the time was a, a student at um, uh, at Stern College, and she shared the advice that was shared among students. Also, like, don't ask this rabbi, don't ask that rabbi. Mm-hmm. If you ask this rabbi and you cry when you speak to him, he'll definitely give you an extra six right, it months. It becomes, like, manipulative. It's just a, it's just a distortion of, of the halachic system. It, it's a sign of just total 
lack of of trust, like like and value mm. misalignment. That if I tell this rabbi, I want to finish law school, or like I I want to finish residency before I start having children, whatever, you know, like that. That there's going to be no. Um, I, I don't trust that that my values and my priorities for life are going to be like understood and accepted and and, set, and received with sympathy by the rabbi. So instead, I, I'm just I just have like this out of fear for what I know, like what I want for my life, but also to, like I, I'm going to like find somebody who will like again like put his name on the dotted line because that's what I need. It's just I don't think that's that's not that's not halacha being a source of guidance, a source of wisdom. It's, it's not, it's yeah, just once a, you know what someone's going to say, do you ha- even have to ask, like, what's even the point? Like, why are you having the conversation? Yeah, it was a very, it was a very disturbing, you know, and, I, you know, I don't know if it still happens. This was a long time ago when I, when I heard this. And, I feel and like it for sure still does. I suspect it does. And I think, I think it's a really problematic distortion of like what halakha should be about. It's not, again, not providing wisdom, not providing guidance. It's just, uh, it's just people are manipulating. You know, the rabbi feels like it's, you know, takes for himself the prerogative to decide this like very intimate, um, choice about a couple's future, and uh, and then in turn, the students are kind of like kind of manipulating, manipulating the system back, yeah. to like kind of figure out how can they get what they want out of this out of this process, and it's a real. It's not I, so unusual for manipulation in this world to be met with manipulation. Right, right, right. That's totally, <laughs> totally true. But what's missed, what's, what, what, what's lacking is is actually, like, maybe there could be a conversation of, like, uh, like maybe not the Rosh Hashiva who met you, you know, six months ago, but maybe, like, the congregational rabbi who knew you since you were a child mm-hmm. to say, you know, listen, actually, it's okay to have a child while you're in law school. You know, like, I would really encourage you to, like, don't have a child until you're ready, but I want to encourage you to, like, not to push this off too long because, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think that that's a role that I think, like, rabbis can say, to say, like, no, ch- like, have children and like raising children should be um you know something you see as possible and like a connector you know like oh i know this person who was at this prestigious law school who managed to have a child while they were in law school like can i connect you you know and and, and, like opening up worlds of possibility that someone might not have seen otherwise i think that's another kind of helpful way to uh, that a rabbi could be in the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I um I heard once from uh, Rav Bick. You, you, you his book you, you're, you're teaching and in Shul, he uh, he was I was in his shear when I was at the Gush for most of that year. And his father also Rabbi Bick was a congregational rabbi in Washington Heights. And he many many years ago complained that um, it was always the Rosh Yeshiva who would perform the weddings. And then when the marriages failed, they would go back go to the congregational <laughs> rabbis to like, you know, pick up the pieces and try Aww. to, you know, sort things out. And he sort of felt there was like a little bit of an imbalance there. <laughs> yeah, totally. So the other piece of, of the conversation about birth control that I thought we should just mention is that obviously um, there's many different kinds of birth control. And I feel like actually over my time here, I've gotten a good number of questions of, can I use this type? Can I use the other type? Sure. Um, and you know, there's some, as, as birth control technologies develop, they, they've had some like funny, uh, ramifications across the Jewish world. So for example, um, there's a type of IUD called a Mirena and, um, it's completely halakhically permissible, uh, to be used. And many women have them inserted after they've had, you know, once, once they've decided, you know, I've had my, however many children, I, I don't want to have any more, um, you know, presumably in conversation with their spouse, they've come to that conclusion. And, um, when women are on the Mirena, they don't 
many women don't menstruate really at all, which means that even through years where you would be a regular mikvah user, where you're not on any birth control, because the birth control means you're not using the mikvah as often, mikvahot across the country are feeling like a financial crush. Mikvahot that are that had been sustained by users paying, paying fee for service exactly uh, are now suffering because it's right because the the women are really only using the mikvah for the months when they're trying to conceive and when they're not trying to conceive the birth control method they're using even hormonal birth control pills right if you right well, off, it, depending yes. how you use them right they're not using the mikvah as often that's uh that's really interesting it's like a funny it's just like a funny byproduct of the pervasiveness of birth control in our community and and, and that's how you really like see just how many people are using birth control is that there's like financial ramifications for these essential jewish institutions because also none, nobody who gets a morena is like and i want the mikvah to fail it means we have to think of new funding models for these institutions you know i i, I just saw um, rabbis used to be paid per Shaila. I like, saw that also. Yes, I don't know, someone was writing about that. Uh, no, for for um, for chicken Shaila, chicken, chicken Shaila. You'd exactly. bring your chicken to the rabbi, you'd look at the lungs, I guess, whatever, check it out, and and you'd give him a quarter, and that was so. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's also whatever a model, you know that. Whatever has no longer seems to be uh, you know applicable. Then you know. We... Yeah, but for the non-members who ask us questions, you should consider it. But um, the other thing I just wanted to say is sometimes people have concerns about types of birth control that will lead them to not have their periods because they're sort of like, well, there's this like whole area of halacha that it basically sidesteps you from. Oh no 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 no. Right. So, but it's a logical thought. Yeah yeah. But uh, like similarly, we don't say it's prohibited to be a vegetarian, um, even though it sidesteps you from all the rules about meat and milk. Right. Um, <laughs> no, vegetarians also have to have two sets of dishes. Just, just to <laughs> when, they, when they when they use it, when they never use. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's like a funny thought, right? Like, yeah. oh, there's like this whole area of halakha that like I'm kind of exempting myself from because I don't menstruate anymore. Yeah. Um, and so people have like feel like um, guilt about it, which I think is is interesting and like beautiful in a certain way. Yeah, but, but like that's a, not a no, it's not no, a relevant no, consideration no, no. Yes, in, yes. in your birth control uh, journey. No. And two things I understand that when the hormonal birth control was invented, they put in the placebo pills that cause the, right. menstruation just for um just for like religious organizations not, i don't, oh, I, don't think I heard it was pressure uh, from the church what did you hear i thought just like that the women would feel like more authentic or just feel like like more natural that they're still having something akin to menstruation oh, by having placebo pills i think it's akin to you know when they uh like the cake mixes, the first cake mixes. Yeah, you didn't need eggs, and then people felt like they weren't cooking. So like break an egg, crack an egg. But they could put the egg in the powder also. They have powdered <laughs> eggs. They could just put the powdered egg in. But like if you put the, crack the egg, then it feels like, okay, I'm baking. And then, then you feel comfortable serving this to your guests or for a kid's birthday party because I broke an egg. So, yeah, so that's I would what, say like women don't love being compared to cake mixes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But, but I, 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 I'm comparing the, the pharmacologist. To oh, the, the pharmacologist <laughs> or the king. All right, fine. Um, but the other thing I was... Gonna... Sorry, when, when, can yeah, I go, go ahead. Up, while you're thinking of what you're going to say? The yeah. other thing, I, but we see from the literature that menstruation used to be much less common than it is in modern times right. from like, the assumptions that the halakha codes make about... Yeah, uh, you know, a nursing woman, you know, a woman, a woman after childbirth mm. doesn't menstruate again for two years, two years. and that's yeah. like a that's a chazaka, right? And uh, it seems that nutrition is really poor, and like the body took a long time to recover from pregnancy and childbirth, and so that also a woman who like, you know, has a child like every 
two to four, like just she wouldn't be, you know, she'd be pregnant or post-pregnant for many of the otherwise mikvah using years. And so that also meant that I, I you know, I don't know how mikvahs were supported financially in like the 14th century, but it yeah. uh, but suggests mikvah- that the, like the monthly menstrual cycle is actually a product of um, the like modern, era modern nutrition, nutrition right? that we, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I did just want to mention while we're talking about this, that sometimes people hear like, oh, um, I take the pill and then I'll just stop. I'll just start skipping months and it'll work perfectly. A lot of women do not react well to that. They'll spot through it. It just doesn't. It makes them not feel good. Um, so we kind of like. I, I feel like in in the like world of people who keep halacha, it's like, oh yeah, then then you you just like skip a month and it's totally normal. Um, I just want to say it's totally normal that everyone's body reacts differently to that. And Your mileage for may, some may people, it work. <laughs> and some people, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with you if you like start spotting when you're trying to skip a month. Um, all of that. And, and certainly, like, different kinds of birth control work differently for different people. But if you are thinking about um, changing up what type of birth control you're using or whatever, so there are certain, like, halachic elements to keep in mind. So, for example, many people, if you get a copper IUD, um, will spot a lot with a copper IUD. And that can be um, really challenging for Hilchonida. So that's just something to consider. But there could be reasons why a copper IUD would be the right thing for you and and therefore, like, that should maybe – we'll figure out together how to make that work. And then the other thing is is um, certain types of birth control that, like, sit on or inside your body but that are, like, not just hormones that you swallow or something that's, like, like totally sitting inside your uterus. Oh, right. Um, but, yeah, like, so the patch or, um, or there's a um, – a loop thing, I forget what the actual name for that is called, that like sits inside your vaginal canal. So some of those, it, navigating that and going to the mikvah can also be a little bit of a challenge. All of these challenges can be overcome, but those are just some things to think about in terms of um, making birth control choices. And And then I would also say like there's, you know, the decision, sometimes people feel very pressured to use hormonal birth control and they don't want to for whatever reason, um, you know, around the wedding, like, oh, just to make sure you're not going to be Nida at your wedding, like just go on the pill, even just for a couple of months. And women feel like, oh, I have to do that. Um, and I don't think that is like an a, uh, a way to think about halakha that I love. Like, I don't I don't know what halakhic problems need to be resolved by hormonal, uh, synthetic hormonal solutions. I think if, if using hormonal birth control is something that you want to do and you think is right for you and for your spouse and whatever, uh, amazing. Using a diaphragm is also um, a, an effective form of birth control. It does not involve synthetic hormones that can, can in fact, have ramifications for, for your body and for different people react um, differently to them. And there's no reason, meaning, let's say, your need at your wedding so of course there's repercussions to that but there's anytime you need that for the rest of your life there's gonna be um, a way that that feels and 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 it's okay and um and if that is something that is like creeping up in your life you can uh, come talk to us about it and we will not pressure you to take birth control in order to figure out how to navigate it um yeah so anyways birth control is really really interesting and um as you're making decisions about it if you have any questions of course come and talk to me or you. I don't know whether you get questions like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, so does Sarah. Sarah. also, yes. And I was going to say Sarah is very much um, in this world and available as well. We are here in Slensky Studios with Alana Pentelnik, one of the newest addition to the Anshishalom Board of Directors. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Alana actually sent us the first voice note um, <laughs> as a response to an episode. We were super thrilled about that. Um, so thank you. Yeah. 
I was driving and I just got really excited about what you were saying, so I had to record myself to respond. You could, if you're listening to this and you want to make it meta, you could like send a voice note to Alana about how enthusiastic you are about her interview on the Straw Hat. I think that would be really appropriate. Um, anyway, so Alana, um, you're involved in all sorts of things in the show, which we're super grateful for, obviously. Um, I thought we could just talk about some of them. So anyone who reads the back of the bulletin would know that you are one of the chairs of the Young Professionals committee. Yes, I've been doing that, I think, now for maybe two years, maybe. Yeah, I think so, two years. At least two years, because you were doing it by the time I got here. Time flies, but yeah, I think I've been doing (laughs) it for over two years now. And how did you get pulled into that? Um, So, those who know Ann Levinson, there was, like, thoughts that she was leaving, and so I was, actually, I think a month into living here, I was asked to do it and I was like no Um, (laughs) I was like I just got here so no thank you but um then like months and months later um Ann Levinson was leaving uh, or so we thought so I was I was asked to join and I you know, thought, yes, everything in my past has led me to here. So <laughs> everything. What in your past specifically um, has led you to this moment? Well, I was very involved in USI when I was growing up and mm-hmm. I was um membership um Kadima board. I was the president of my chapter and I was on the like, you know, all that like membership and involvement type things I was involved in. Gotcha. Ah, oh, that's fun. Ah, oh, we love USY board members <laughs> here. I feel like our show is full of them. Um, that is awesome. And so you were well trained for like synagogue volunteering opportunities and leadership. Yes. My father was president of the shul that I grew up in, and both my parents like helped start Chavarahs and Minions growing up. So I think I've just been always known to be actively involved wherever I'm at. That is awesome, and we very much treasure that about you. Um, do you, Are there any, like, YP moments that you feel, like, really proud of? Well, we got um, tablecloths, reusable tablecloths, and that was really cool. That's just, like, the amount of plastic tablecloths that we're not using is very exciting to me. Also, we've just had some very big meals that, you know, are really fun, and I think just cool... You know, when you have people that say, oh, this has gotten me involved, just Mm. meeting this person or things like that, those stories mean a lot. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I want to talk about the tablecloths in a second, but how many people come to a normal YP meal? Like, if I'm not a YP, I think I would probably have no idea. Um, On the small side, it's like 40, but we've definitely gotten 60, maybe. I think once we got 70, but that was really extreme. But I'd say, like, between 50 and 60. Okay, amazing. And then they're usually followed by an own egg somewhere. Yes. So if you have a big apartment and are a young professional, we are always looking for hosts. Um, (laughs) But we do have some great people in the community that offer up their homes. And so we, after a meal, we go to their place and, you know, snacks and drinks and just sometimes there's like singing that takes place. Sometimes it's just socializing, really whatever happens. It's a really great time. And those are about once a month. Yes. So the next one is the 28th. February. So sign up. <laughs> and you guys got actually good food too. Yeah. I think the only time I've had tacos Gigi was at AYP meal. It's so delicious. It really is delicious. Okay. So let's talk about tablecloths. You are very invested in environmentalism and um, you got some tablecloths for the show, which we use now, not only for YP meals, but for other events, Shabbat table, use them. We use them at the post-up party recently. So you can, you know, count out the number of, <laughs> the number of plastic tablecloths that were saved by these. Um, Are there other environmental initiatives that you want to maybe tell our listeners about? Yes. 
Definitely. Well, first I want to thank Ava Madoff and Ann Levinson because they helped in getting the tablecloths and that was like very nice to have a committee on board yeah. with getting that change. But um, yeah, so recently over Sukkot, we started this initiative um, paired up with Laura Slutsky. I think um, there's some other people involved in helping. We actually did this trial with the YP committee. We do meals over Sukkot in the sukkah potlucks and that way nobody's left out and everybody has a meal together. It's really amazing, a really, really fun time. And so we were like, this this time we're going to do all composting for all the meals. And I think there's like at least six, maybe eight meals. There's a lot. A lot of meals. So a lot of meals where we could, you know, get all the leftover food and instead of plastic ware and plastic plates, we were able to get all of those as compostable goods. And some of the members of the shul here, we already compost with the compost club through Urban Canopy. So we just reached out to them and tried this trial to do composting. And that was pretty successful. And since then, we've been trying to figure out what are the next ways that we can take more sustainable steps in the shul mm-hmm. um, to help represent those um, values as well as, you know, the other ones that we hold here. So we've been trying to figure out if we can do composting at the shul, but that's still, you know, we're taking steps. We're working with Daniel um, Shiat and Mona Frieden to see if we can do that. Laura and I actually have a call tomorrow with Hazon to see, you know, get advice from them. Mm -hmm. Um, Some steps we can take. Maybe it's not all composting for everything, but maybe there's some steps and advice. That's what they're there for. And maybe, yeah, maybe even get some grants and we might try fundraising at the shul for, to make some of these steps for those, you know, who are passionate. We would... Do you have a sense of how much it would cost to turn everything over to compostables and to get the compost picked up? We do. That's great. <laughs> Seems like you don't know it offhand, so that's fine. Exactly. We, Anyone we've interested calculated. can get in touch with Alana. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've definitely calculated it, worked with Steve and Daniel, and um, it's great to see their support and seeing about maybe making a trial here. Mm-hmm. But I think first we're going to talk to Hazon and just get their advice because that's what they're there for. So that'll be really great to hear. And that would be a great partnership for yeah. the show in general. Yeah. They're a wonderful organization. Um, and then one one initiative that, that I do think is exciting and, and already has action is um, the upcoming Mishloch Manot are going to be a little bit different this year. Yeah. So Erica Phillips reached out, um, which was really exciting. She heard that, you know, I was trying to bring some more sustainable efforts to the shul. And she asked about Laura and I helping with some ideas for the Mishloch Manot. So they already did amazing steps last year of, putting the, the Mishlach Mano in uh, reusable bags. And this year we are making sure that all the items are local. So we um, got, should I reveal? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it's a secret or not. I don't know. Well, you okay, let's keep it a secret okay. just in case. But you can look forward. It's really exciting. Yes. And you'll probably learn about some new local kosher yes. companies that you maybe haven't heard of until now. Exactly. So. One of which I had not heard of, and I Googled it today and was very rewarded by what I found. We're leaving everyone on such a suspense. <laughs> I know. All I'm saying is once you get this, Michelle Aquino, like, yeah. be interested in what's inside of them. And the bag, <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. We're looking at different bags or different other ways that we could, you know, put them together. And it was just, like, very exciting. Even, um, we get the pretzels from Windy City every year, mm-hmm. so we're getting compostable, biodegradable, instead of plastic baggies. bags. Yeah, the baggies. So. Ah, cool. Yeah. So it's very exciting that, to see other people who are excited by trying to take these sustainable steps. 
Yeah, I mean, we're all hoping that the planet doesn't, like, fall apart. So I feel like having a leader who we can turn to to say, we're excited about <laughs> this kind of thing, please, like, tell us what to do. Yes. Um, I think we're really grateful that you've taken up that, that role and, and leadership in that way. So thank you. Yeah, of course. So we always ask people when we have them on the podcast, like, if someone in Shoal is listening to this podcast and says, well, Anna sounds awesome, where do I find her? I would like to meet her. What are some places where you can be found? Um, I am in the... The fifth from the back row, mm-hmm. um, and I'm usually next to Laura Slusky and Carly Salinger. So, so if you know who those people are, yeah. you can find a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm probably like the third or fourth from the Mechita. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And if <laughs> also that like wasn't kiddish. helpful to you, I can always direct you Alana's <laughs> way. <laughs> I'm also like a kiddish. You can see me there. Um, and yeah, I'm also just around. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Straw Hat. As always, thank you to our producer, Haley Leventhal, for making everything about this podcast happen. Thank you to Alana for coming in and being interviewed. And thank you for listening. If you love what you heard, feel free to, of course, send us a voice note or write a note out by hand and pin it to our door or send it by carrier pigeon or an email that would work too um and if you didn't like what you heard in this episode you should definitely sponsor the shoals composting and then compost your comments and you should write it on um compostable material have a wonderful week thanks so much for listening